I, th- I think dad recollects that we were really hard on you and it developed all kinds of wonderful well, character you know, in you that it didn't develop in the, me. The story he's cling to, I swear it's the story he brings out the most, is that you locked me underneath the stairs. So like my children you are- You rolled him up in a carpet yes. and you locked him underneath the stairs. My kids are horrified <laughs> that that you were just traumatizing me. And, and My kids get a kick out of that one too. What, what do they think of, of, of their dad being like, the, why weren't you the nice? torturer? Why weren't you nicer to Uncle Eric? He seems so nice. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're going to give special recognition to an employee who's made a significant impact on our company by presenting her with the prestigious John W. Nordstrom Award. Hi. Hi. What are you guys doing? We're crashing the meeting. Why are you crashing my meeting? It's meeting adjourned. Terry, sorry, no more speech from you, but that's the meeting. <laughs> you know, it's been really quiet upstairs. And we heard all this noise and activity, so we thought we'd come down and give out the JWN Award. But first, join me and my brother Eric for a revealing look back into our family history. Now, the last time we sat down together in episode two, we had our cousin Jamie with us, and we talked more broadly about the company and the Nordstrom name. But this time, it's just Eric and me, and we're diving deeper into some of the more intimate details of growing up together and working in the family business. I feel super fortunate for our shared journey, and I really enjoyed this opportunity to sit and chat with Eric as we reminisce about our time together with our older brother, Blake, while he was still with us. Now, for those of you who don't know, our brother, Blake, passed away unexpectedly in 2019. And I don't know that I could overstate this, but it was a jarring situation at work, and certainly for us personally, we didn't always work side by side, but we're pretty close in age and we've followed a pretty similar path growing up through the business and had a lot of shared experiences. But I think Blake really deserves a lion's share of the credit of keeping us together as a unit and making sure that however we presented ourselves to the company and in public, it was an aligned presentation. So there was no gap about what we were trying to achieve. He's really missed around here and it was it was fun for Eric and I to actually talk about Blake in this way. We, we don't do that often, as you might imagine, because it's, you know, it, it's sad too, he's not here, but there's a lot to celebrate about the legacy that he's left and the impression he's made on so many people. So with that, let's get into it. Hey, I'm here with my brother, Eric. We're going to have a little chat about stuff, which is not unusual because we chat about stuff all day long. I mean, your office is uh, 25 feet away from mine. So here we are. Yes, it is. (laughs) Did you prepare questions for me? No, I've got, you know, I got some stuff written down, but I mean, don't, don't look too much into this. But my first question is, you know, your kids are older than mine by like, what, 20 years on average or something, quite a bit. Yes. How have you dealt with? 
with your kids around the family legacy stuff? Because none of your kids work at Nordstrom. They're adults. And what is kind of their attachment to all the Nordstrom stuff now? Because you know, for us, anytime someone says, oh, Nordstrom, you mean like the company and do you work there? And our answer is, well, yeah. They get that question, I'm sure, as much as we do. And their answer is like, no. Well, first of all, Julie and I, my wife, our deal was you reach a certain age, you have to get a job. And all three of them worked at the that store. That sounds familiar. Yes, very familiar to what our dad did. And it's all three worked at the store at various times. But it was different in so many ways. You know, I, my memory is when we were teenagers working the store, the company wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't a national company. But for my kids, it was more conspicuous. And all three had this just very burning desire to make their own mark and not be seen as, you know, getting an advantage, much less maybe an unfair one. And, and I was, it seemed I, like it kind of was settled pretty early on that this is not where they were going to be. It was pretty clear they weren't going to go there. And for Julie and I, we were both really aligned that you just want your kids to have a fulfilling life and that they worked hard and had purpose and goals and motivation. Where they pointed at was fine. It, the other reality is the company is bigger. It's a big public company and the path, it's not without its challenges. And there's some relief of not having, because knowing they won't have to go through people questioning the position they have because it's nepotism or whatever. There's some of the things that can go along with a, being a big public company, but still having this family name that's associated with it. Now, that being said, it, it does come up and uh, they'll relay now and then that uh, there can be some presumptions like born with a silver spoon, haven't had to work hard. For they did they grow were. up on the mean streets of Medina. They, they did. Uh, <laughs> like my kids are growing up on the mean but, streets of Mercer Island. It's, but it's, it's not the roughest life. No, but it's, see, you're, your kids are young, so you don't have this perspective yet. So let me okay. let me share my wisdom with you. My, my younger brother, give me the perspective. There, there, there's something, you know, life goes quickly, and you're, especially with your kids growing up, and all of a sudden they're just, they're out of college, and all of a sudden they're working and they're independent. They don't need an allowance. They don't need money. They've got a place to live. And Julie and I talk about it. You know, all the mistakes and that we've made and where we weren't sure and, and being a good parent. Then you kind of look at it like, gosh, that's feel lucky. I uh, feel well, proud of them. Your kids have turned out really but, well. So but that's, you deserve some credit for yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's so satisfying to, and there's such so proud of them of making their lives in the world and being good people and having real kind of passion for whatever is they're doing is great. And so, you know, it, it seems pretty petty, whatever connection is to the company. Now, it has become clear over the last couple of years, the attachment to the company is really important to them. And it kind of surprised me at the time, like, okay, they don't work here. So it's whatever, it's where their dad works. And it's not that at all. So it's, they want to talk about it. They want to know what's going it's on. It's really... I think that are proud to be associated with the company. I think it is an important part of their lives, even though they don't work here. It's something that's really, really meaningful to them, which, I mean, not only warms my heart, but it, but it does fit with one of the North Stars we've had operating the company is that the company is a place those associated with it are proud of. It's early days for me. Kids are 9 and 11. We'll, we'll see how it's that coming. all works out. I mean, you can already see it. It plays out in school. Like the kids ask them about it. Do they? Does it come yeah, up then, for then them? then they come home. So how do, how do they respond? How do they piece well, this they, together? They're so young, it's hard for them to talk about it. Like Mickey, my daughter, will say, well, 
a kid told me today, I'm the richest kid in school because you're my dad. And I said, I very well might not be the richest dad in your school. <laughs> you go to I, a I'm nice confident school. you are not. I'm probably not. <laughs> but because the name's attached to it. And so that stuff starts coming up. I mean, and you think it's too young to, but it starts coming up. And then they start trying to understand the world around them and what we do. Because I don't really talk about it much with yeah. the kids. They're not interested in that. Have you ever had some sense of, I mean, guilt or whatever around nepotism? Because I'll, I'll say like for me, people would ask, well, I mean, do you think nepotism played a role? And I, I'm sure it did. I mean, I, I have benefited from nepotism, but I don't feel bad about that. Because I mean, at a certain point, whatever benefits I got, I laid the rest by doing the jobs. I, how does that nepotism thing affect you? Yeah, a couple of ways. And it's changed just the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, we had all the jobs. We didn't skip. We did any, all the jobs. We didn't yes, skip we did. steps. We've worked hard. But yeah, there's no doubt we had opportunities. But I felt at peace with that. What's become more conspicuous the last couple of years is, is understanding, you know, more about privilege and that we had opportunities because of our family, the company, where we grew up, where we went to school, that plenty of others don't have. Now, I don't think we squandered those opportunities. I don't think we took advantage of that and led a life that's not something we'd be proud of. But it's really become more crystal clear that there's others, lots of others, who don't have opportunity. And you know the privilege that goes with that, the privilege of being able to demonstrate what you can do, the privilege of stubbing your toe and have it not be a career ender. So it makes me more energized and determined around opportunity. Uh, how can we do whatever our part is in our communities to uh, have that, that there is more equality and opportunities? And you know, I, I think our companies, certainly over our time, we do promote from within a lot. And you know, part of the selling culture is you're on commission and your earnings are what you produce. And so there's this performance meritocracy that I've, I think has always been a strength of ours. But, you know, holding the mirror up to us, like knowing there are there are places in our company where it's not equal opportunity. It's it's not our representation is, is what it should be. And so I, I think it's made me more determined to, for what the things we can control, we're evolving and, and providing uh, the opportunity. And then it'll make our company better. So one of the things that I think comes up, I'm curious your point of view is, and these are, I guess, our presumptions of what people think about us, that people all think we're the same person and, <laughs> and therefore must think exactly the same way about everything. And we were just talking about it at lunch. I mean, that even comes up like when we deal with the board, that they kind of feel like we're a package deal. I mean, I think it goes back to you know, our dad and his cousins. You know, I thought they were a package. I, I thought they saw things the same way and made the same decisions because, you know, we never heard him say a disparaging word or a conflicting word about uh, his cousins. But once we started kind of working full time and got to see those guys at work, we realized they're quite different people and, and actually don't agree on much uh, <laughs> right after that. Yeah. But, you know, our dad, he believed and lived so much that team was the most important thing. So... I get that. I get the assumption that we're one, that uh, we'd have the same viewpoint in, on everything. But, you know, we wouldn't be a, a good team if that was the case. And particularly when all the years we worked with Blake and had the three of us, what made that work was 
we knew we were different people and that if we could somehow bring the best of each of the three without getting the downsides of being three different people, we could be better as a team. And we were very focused on the team being as successful as possible, not the individual. And so you don't have to be perfect. And it's something I've greatly valued kind of my life is that to have, you know, not just a brother, but to have a sounding board that he has like complete trust in. You know, there's nothing you can say that would jeopardize the relationship. And so you, you can say what's on your mind. We can be direct and honest with each other and in a work setting around work stuff. That's been really important. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard a lot of it too. Like people say, I could never work with my siblings you know, for whatever reason. And I never really thought about it this way as being an issue for us. I don't think it was, but it kind of starts with, we were never in competition with each other. It wasn't like we were gunning for a job at the expense of the other or gunning for attention or something tied to ego or control. It was, you know, we're doing a job. We were going to kind of make it or not together. I think we all knew that going in and kind of accepted it to your point about the example, our dad set with his cousins and, um, but we're also different people. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, had our own differences or frustrations along the way. And it was hard. It's hard to not, you know, let that spill over. I didn't find that all that challenging because our dad just was so clear in his example and in his words of, you know, the most important thing is you support your brothers, you support your family. That's just that simple. And, you know, you guys, you have like were always so great of, you know, trying to reinforce my strengths as opposed to pointing out what I wasn't good at. And it does a lot for your confidence and uh, taking on new assignments and doing things that you're not sure about. That was similar for me because I, particularly with Blake, he was, I mean, it was kind of his nature. He was such a supportive guy. And I think he really took all those examples of our dad and our, his cousins, like a real responsibility that he was going to lead through that in a way that was super constructive and supportive it also made me feel kind of guilty. He was always so kind of encouraging and supportive of me. It's like, it's almost like that can't be true. But it's, I mean, that's just kind of the way he was. Yeah, you know. It, I don't think he was faking it. I think that's the way he no, was. No, yeah, totally not faking it. But of the three of us, he was the most like our dad in, in, in very literal ways. Even some of his phrasing, cornball phrasing he would use, uh, Blake. <laughs> yeah, Blake picked up those cliches. He, he embraced those. And so, yeah, he, and so he really embraced that role of oldest brother. And I think for you to me, it set the tone that it is about support. Because, you know, think about if he wasn't. Like if he was the older brother who was looking to be in control and to have the power and put us in our place because we're younger, you know, that would have set the dynamic completely differently. He, he set that example clearly. To his credit, I think he was a really self-aware guy too. So to your point about the benefit of bringing the best of what the three of us have to offer is better than any one person could probably be if it was done in a constructive way. There wasn't a lot of hubris with him. He wasn't the kind of guy that thought he was good at everything. I think he was quick to know if it wasn't his sweet spot. He was. I think the area had a hard time with you was was on merchandising because he loved merchandising. He loved being a shoe buyer and a shoe merchandiser. And it seemed to me he knew you had better merchant instincts on the, certainly the creative uh, parts of it. But he just so badly wanted to assert himself. I think that was (laughs) the hardest one. And I think I admired, he did a good job of giving you the space. uh, But That one, I think, was really hard for him. I think you bring people inside the tent on that one. I mean, the way it was when our dad and his cousins had it, they each 
had their own merchandising divisions that they ran and oversaw. It's kind of like they took the whole company and divided it up in these equal parts that weren't distinctive or in any kind of silo, where when we got going with it, it was like, okay, you know, Eric had stores, I had merchandising, and Blake had kind of the general operations of the place and the board interface. But he always had it in his mind that we should divide up, you know, the, um, the merchandising part of it. Like, it can't be a good thing that Pete has all of merchandising, you know, where I think you and I came down, I was like, most of it's the same, like how you do it and the uh, vendors you work with, a lot of them overlap. And it just would have been a confusing message as the company's got bigger. And, <laughs> and I think while Blake got that intellectually, I emotionally, I think that was really hard for him. But to his credit, he let it ride, although he definitely he took a shot at it a few times with yeah. us saying, I think this is what should happen. Yeah. <laughs> he would still walk a store as a store manager, walk a stock room, and the store manager would be left with many pages of a list <laughs> of things to attend yeah, to. Yeah, Blake liked the list. So, you know, we're kind of touching on some of the stuff that made us different. So how do you think we're different? I think you are much more creative and able to, you know, step back and look at kind of the whole painting, look at the whole picture of the situation, or I'm much more linear. I'm much more analytical. I need to understand the steps from A to B to C to D. You could jump around. You could get to D, you could get <laughs> to C. Much people's you could frustration. Well, <laughs> but it, it it's not to my frustration, by the way. And and like we've together used to support our store planning function. In the, in the era, we were opening a lot of stores and it was a weekly meeting we'd have. And I thought it was, in all humility, I thought we were really good at it <laughs> as, a, as a pair because I would like go back to, what would we call that? That sales per square foot report. Yeah. And, I, and I would look at what departments are over the company average sales per square foot and what are under in that store. And so where should we be looking to change some space? And that was helpful. There was data driving that. But you would bring the table, like, not just do all the numbers lead to a conclusion. You step back. Is that you know, a compelling place to shop. So, but how, like, how was Blake different, do you think, then, from that? This may sort of surprise some people. Blake liked big change, but he would get there silently, like, over weeks or months. Like, in our meetings, the three of us would meet. He would launch, you know, I think we should do X. And it, it could be from out of left field. And I remember having a lot of discussions. I'm like, okay, I, I trust your instincts, but I have no idea how you landed on that. Like, you got to bring me along how you got there. Which one of his favorite things to say is, I don't know. I just think there's something there. My gut tells my me. My gut tells me there's something there. And I, 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 which we didn't usually respond super well to. No, I was like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not good enough. I need to hear more <laughs> than, than your gut uh, tells him. But over time, I, I think he was, he was right most of the time. But we still had good debates on it. And it was frustrating for him because he felt it's not that we changed his mind, but, you know, part of the, the standard we have with, with the three of us, like we agreed we would never have a vote. That's not how we decide things. He it's used like, to like to say, let's vote. My vote is this. He would want to vote because like, no, I don't no think, vote. I didn't think he wanted to make his case, but we kind of would held to our, our practice was, you know, if you're the dissent, it's your job to make your case and convince the others. And if you can't, then you need to be convinced by the others. And But you can't stay in the middle. You can't say, well, I think you guys are wrong, but I just wasn't able to convince you. But so. I'm only one vote. But I'm only one vote. Like, yeah. That's not good enough. And so we would have to keep rustling around. And where we used to talk about it, we said, you do have the right to fire the elephant bullet and said, I just like, I can't take it. That's yep. I, even though I can't explain why I don't like it. I just ain't going for it. 
And I don't know if we ever used it though. We would talk about we it. We talked about the I, elephant bullet. I think we were respectful not to use the elephant bullet. <laughs> yeah, those are interesting times. I feel a lot the same way about how we were different. You know, when it gets back to, you know, Blake wanting to be involved in some of the stuff he maybe wasn't as close to or wanted to have a merchandising division that he was doing. I always felt like big part of that was his job was not nearly as fun or interesting as yours or mine was. Because we were more kind of in the middle of running stuff, like from the engine room of what we do, when he had to spend a lot of time, you know, as the kind of more the traditional president of a public company interfacing with the board and, and some of the stuff that's important, but it's not the literal stuff that we do that's the interesting stuff, at least to me. Yeah. Like he was, he kind of got the short straw. <laughs> yeah, I really don't know what the reality was because he would complain to us now and then of how his job was not always rewarding. But but then, and we <laughs> would call him out on this, like, you seem to like it. Like it's, uh, he got it. a lot of energy from it. And I think he got energy from responsibility and it was his assignment and, you know, making sure his, his part is, is really good. It's also true though. I think he sincerely got a lot of enjoyment out of seeing either one of us have success or the group have success. I, he yeah. was a pretty selfless guy, I think, when it came to getting credit. Yep. And he was Definitely. quick, as you remember, to deflect credit onto you and me if he felt like he was, you know, because he kind of naturally got more of it because he's the older one. It was like, okay, well, Blake's the guy. And you see, now you mention it, it makes me feel bad. I Because I don't think I'm ever trying to give you credit Yeah, for you don't things. give me enough credit. That's, <laughs> I was going to talk to you about that. But So when we're talking about how we're different, you talked about, be more of a process and a linear guy. I think this goes back a little bit to um, when we were young. <laughs> you had to put up with me more than I had to put up with you. And that's just because I was the older brother <laughs> that was kind of lording over you and taking out whatever angst I had on you conveniently. So sorry about that. But I remember kind of clearly things seemed like they came easier to you and I, I, the way it always I remember it playing out was like if we're playing some kind of game. So we could have been playing Stratego or <laughs> one of the games that we play, Battleship or card games or something. And I always felt like you would win. And I was older, so it just it bugged me. And to the point where if you won too many times, it would basically end with me somehow like punching you punching or me, yes. beating you up or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel bad about that now, but that's that's <laughs> how I think I dealt with that at the time. I haven't heard you say that. Before. I always felt like you know, Eric was uh, the smartest guy in the group, and that's how I used to describe it. And that's how I would think about it. It's like even when we were kids, like he, the, you know, those kind of games that were had an intellectual bent to them. <laughs> I felt like I always lost. Uh, I don't remember winning my disproportionate amount of, of games, but. Uh, I appreciate that. It's given me insecurity uh, even to this day. Really? Wow. That's a, that's a big burden to carry <laughs> all these years. Been, it's been rough. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you have kids and you know, my kids are grown now. And the dynamic we had, you know, three boys and with us being the closest in age, uh, you know, we were together all the time. And like we never got in a full drawn out fight. But well, as you recall. But, but you punched me a lot. I, I did. Uh, I, I would kind of rough you up. But as you recall... Dad's solution to that was if you guys can't get along and you're gonna if you're gonna argue and you're gonna fight, I've got boxing gloves here and yes. I'll be the referee and you guys can box, much to our mother's horrified chagrin. She was like, <laughs> What? And as I recall, the boxing gloves would go on, 
but I don't recall ever any yeah, punches I, I, being thrown. He was quick and he knew what he was doing. He would be quick to like, Here, here's the gloves. And we're like, oh, no, no. You guys no, want to no. fight? I'll oh. referee. Go for it. But like my kids like never had the, you know, two girls, one boy. But I, the physical fighting was never part of it. And there was the wrestling around and kind of the physical dominance thing was part of our dynamic. I clearly remember like, you know, you would stick up for me. Like, like you could pick on me, but no one else could. Well, yeah. uh, and there was the one benefit. And I suppose. there was, you know, we played a lot of basketball in the backyard and whatever other games and you know, any of the physical contests you were always beat me because you were older. But right now it seems like it's pretty good. Good yeah, it times. Seems, it seems pretty good now. I, th- I think dad recollects that we were really hard on you and, it developed all kinds of wonderful well, character you know, in you that it didn't develop in me. The, the story he's cling to, he's 88 now, and that <laughs> to this day, like the only, I swear it's the story he brings out the most, is that you locked me underneath the stairs. So like my children you are- You rolled him up in a carpet yes. and you locked him underneath the stairs. My kids are horrified <laughs> that that you were just traumatizing me. And and I mean- We would shove you in there You would shove me in now and there, but it wasn't- Not, not for too long. It wasn't like claustrophobic or-, or Torture, but the way he tells it, it's like complete emotional harassment. My kids get a kick out of that one too. <laughs> what, what do they think of, of, of their dad well, being why, the, why the ni- torturer? Why weren't you nicer to Uncle Eric? He seems so nice. Like, <laughs> oh. But that obviously manifested itself. We you know played a lot of sports together, and then that played out all the way you know even through college when we played basketball together. Even after that, and some men's leagues and some stuff like that. So. We were used to being on the same team. Yeah, but it's, you know, you mentioned that often people will say, I can't imagine working with my sibling. And, you know, we played JV basketball at the University of Washington two years together, and then you became the coach. So you, you coached me for two years. And, and people are like, you tell people that. They're like, I can't imagine. <laughs> I seem to it remember was awesome. it, was a, it was a it was good great. deal for you. got a lot of run when I was coaching. I, I got some playing time. It was you great. Some, yeah, you had a lot of freedom. <laughs> yes. So you know, going back to the Blake stuff, I mean, this is kind of the awkward stuff to talk about that's kind of painful, you know, since he's he's been gone. It's, it's going to be three years, right? Three, three years. years. And God. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what it is you miss most about him or how, I guess, how him being gone has impacted the job that you do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything. <laughs> it's, uh, we worked together several times growing up, but really, you know, for the last 20 plus years, we worked so hard to be the best team of three. And it was such a constant I'll speak for myself, constant in my life. So to all of a sudden not have that, to not not only have him there and, and the emotion that goes with that, but to, to have um, all that I've been working and trying to develop myself, being the best member of a team of three I could be is now your best member of a team of two. And, you know, there was a dynamic. We had, the three of us had different roles and and we worked at it. We worked to make sure we were contributing. You know, none of us wanted to be the loser of the group. Uh, we were, worked really hard to, to you know, pull our weight. And that kind of affects everything. And there's parts of Blake, and I guess this is obvious, but it, I'm sure you get it internally too. There's people who you admired uh, and has, has such a love for Blake uh, and certain aspects of what he did, and they want us to do it. Like they want us to, to be him. And 
there's things about him that I, I can't replicate. Well, that gets back to us. We are different. We're not yeah. the same guy. <laughs> That's not a big burden for me, but it is, uh, okay, how, if you and I aren't covering that, and it's a necessary element. How how do we ensure you know that's still in place? I and, and I miss him a lot. Oh, I miss him in all sorts of ways. But it, you know, he liked he liked when times were tough. I mean, he liked the kind of crisis. He got a lot of energy from that. He'd get a lot of clarity. He would have loved uh, these times. Then. He would love these times. Because <laughs> they're tough. He would have loved COVID. Yeah, COVID uh, times. And he had such enthusiasm and kind of confidence when things were particularly bleak. And so, you know, I, I could worry about something else. And you had that kind of rock there. It's like, yeah, it is going to be okay. That'd be nice. Yeah, and nice if we had to, to divide up the responsibilities, he was willing to take the toughest part of that. Like someone's yeah. going to have to deliver this message or someone's got to do the hard part here. And he would always step up. I think that was kind of the older brother part of him. He felt kind of that sense of responsibility. Um, but I think the, for me, the bigger thing is, I mean, I miss him more as a brother than I do as a coworker. I mean, we were an effective oh. team and it was it's an important part of our lives and everything, but it's also true that it's, you know, it's not our entire life. Oh. And, you know, most of your life's about the other stuff. And what he was above all else was a really great older brother. I think he felt, you know, a sense of wanting to be helpful and protective and to do things for us. I mean, if there's anything that we did together, and by the way, it wasn't just work. Our our lives kind of <laughs> were intermingled in a lot of ways. And he was always willing to step up and take on the tasks of these things that weren't necessarily the fun part of doing something as a group. And I miss him as a brother. I mean, that that's the biggest void to me. Because, you know, I, you think about, I remember the one time I came home and he... He had been at my house, I think, a week before, and I was, like, out of firewood or something. And so he, he would take it upon himself, as you know he would do, <laughs> to buy me firewood, have it delivered, and then have it stacked up there. He had no confidence that you could take no, care of No, he had no confidence I could take care of myself. And, <laughs> and rather than me being grateful about that, it'd make me mad. Like, look it. I'm, I was 48 years old over it. I can get my own firewood, and I can stack it up. But you've kind of made me mad. But I think back about now is that was kind of a charming and nice thing. And I, I feel bad for being bad about it because that was really nice. You ever do that for you? Like yeah. you used to do that about like washing the car. Remember when we were like teenagers, yeah. our cars would be a mess and it would drive him bananas. So he would wash our car because he couldn't take it. Yes. And he couldn't understand why we couldn't take it, but he would just take it upon himself. He really did. It's very genuine that he got so much satisfaction of seeing us happy like and just of having a good brotherly relationship he wasn't keeping score on that stuff you know no. what i mean it's like he would do all these things and i ended up feeling kind of bad like god you've done more of this than i have but he loved it no he was not a scorekeeper at all which is a good lesson any yes. any partnership and that's i think he set that example for us that and i think it's one of the things there's plenty of things we're not good at but I think all three of us, and you and I to this day, we, we genuinely do not care who gets credit for what. You know, it's about the team and, and, and getting genuine satisfaction of the other having some success. All right, I got one last question. It is completely random. You know, I've been playing music for a lot of years and 
I don't know if I would consider myself a musician as much as a guy that plays some instruments to some level um, and been played in band and stuff. But I always found it fascinating that you started playing guitar when you were, what, 45? Mid-40s, yeah, somewhere mid-40s. So maybe young 40s. I mean, most people 40s. like me, like I'm 13 years old, it'd be cool to play the electric guitar. That's where the journey begins. How is it that when you were 45 years old or whatever, you started playing the guitar? My our oldest was taking guitar lessons at the time. And there was a somewhere in there, the guitar teacher, instead of dropping her off at his house, he came to our house because he was doing some other lessons in the neighborhood. And so he came over and he, his name's Rob. And he was just so great. He was just so encouraging. And one of his things is everyone sings. He just He rejects the idea that some people can't sing. And I believe I can't sing, but he was just. You know who sing. couldn't sing? Blake couldn't sing. Blake couldn't sing. I, I, I don't. So yeah, I don't agree with Rob on this, but <laughs> he could not but sing. There, there came a point where Julie and I started taking lessons. He was in the house, and I stuck with it. And he was you know, part of what's great about him is like you start playing songs right away. And I remember "Let It Be" was our our first song. It had three chords. Really? Yeah. That's pretty good. It, he he charted out a simplified version for us, and. <laughs> uh, Right away, it I, I became very aware. It was just, and you, I don't know if you have this appreciation because you've done it. I think you do. It is just so clearly a different part of your brain. Yes. And just what it does inside of you that just feels so good and kind of healthy and complete. That's a contrast to, to work as much as I, I love my job. And after our kids went to school, we had an opening. So my oldest best friend, Steve Goldfarb, I have Steve if he wanted to join me. So Steve and I, you know, once a week, we have a two-hour lesson with our Rob comes over. And and it's just one of the things I think both Steve and I value in life. It's we get to, it's, we get to be with an old friend and you get to play some music together. And yeah, it's a blast. So the story that you're not telling that I have to say is the thing that's, I think, amazing about it. So you got this teacher and he's like, most people teaching guitar, most of the students are 14, Right. And yeah. he's teaching them how to play like Highway to Hell by ACDC or something yeah. on electric guitar. <laughs> and so every, I don't know, what, six months, you have like some kind of recital? Well, so yes, he calls it every <laughs> six months, he calls it the jam, but it is a recital. It's, uh, he gets together, he has a friend who's a bass teacher, another friend who's a guitar teacher, and a friend who's a drum teacher. And the teachers form a band around the students. And each student can have up to two songs to play. And he rents out. He did a church first, a kind of a coffee shop at a church. Then he rents his yeah. bar out on a Saturday morning and afternoon. And <laughs> you're now on the I stage. Know about these You've been because uh, not only have I been, which by the way, watching a bunch of 14 year olds get up and play whatever heavy metal song they're playing, and then here comes Eric and Steve in their 50s. Like it's just incredible. It's kind of amazing. And your guys just total lack of self consciousness. Like I'm, I'm in. I'm just doing it. And once you asked me if I wanted to play bass with you guys, and I did it, which was really fun to do. Um, <laughs> but then that was a fun, I was, we're playing in front of a bunch of parents waiting for their kids to come back. What is up with these old guys yeah. playing this song? Yeah. Well, it's so fun <laughs> yeah, to play with great. in a band, but it's, uh, you get kind of, you know, for us, we get nervous because you're in front of people and it's on a stage. Now, the people there, yeah, it's it's it, people's parents. It's the little brother and sister. It's the parents, <laughs> the grandparents who are not there to see old guys playing. They're there to see cute kids. They're not thrilled. <laughs> 
and we play. It's not nearly as cute when you. And guys because are doing you can it. play two songs per students, and there's two of us play together, we'll play four songs. Yeah. And I know people aren't enjoying us playing four <laughs> songs, but but we we have a good time. Well, I admire you for doing it, and most people are too self conscious to do something like that at your age. And I think it's great. So yeah. good on you. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. All right. All right. Fun. Thanks for having another chat with me. We'll do it again because I know how much you love talking on the I podcast. I love talking on the podcast. All right. There'll be more. All right. Thanks, E. All right, before we conclude this episode, I want to share something special that we do at our company to recognize outstanding individuals. It's called the John W. Nordstrom Award. We give this award annually to a manager who has continuously displayed exceptional service, and though we don't usually broadcast these types of things outside our four walls, I thought, hey, we have a podcast now. Why not honor this person's efforts on a bigger stage? Now, what you're about to hear is something that starts as a typical employee meeting, but my dad, Bruce, my brother, Eric, and my cousin, Jamie, and I are about to barge into this meeting unannounced and drop this little surprise on people. Good morning. Thank you again um, for being here, both virtually and physically. I really appreciate it. It's been a bit since we had our last all-hands meeting, um, and there's kind of been a lot of stuff going on, (laughs) right? But before we get too much further into everything that's going on, I want to pause for a minute and make sure everybody clearly recognizes we have an open-door policy. And so the flexibility uh, is important. Hi. Hi. What are you guys doing? I'm crashing the meeting. Why are you crashing my meeting? <laughs> it's been really quiet upstairs, and we heard all this noise and activity, so we thought we'd come down and say hi to you guys. How are you guys doing? Good. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like the first meeting we've had in years, and Bruce is showing up. A standing ovation. We don't get standing Yeah, that was very clear. Your affection for one of the four of us is different. Than, uh, this is super cool. You know, it's, it's been really terrific the last uh, few weeks, couple months, to be able to start to have meetings in person again and to see a lot of folks that, you know, I've, I've only seen through Zoom and video calls uh, to be able to actually you know, stop and talk and find out what's going on in their lives. And, and this is so great. Uh, it's also... Uh, good because uh, we were able to do some things that we, in person, that we've had to do remote for the last couple of years, like uh, give out the JWN Award, which we are going to do today. So it is my extreme honor and privilege to announce that the JWN Award winner is in this room right now. <laughs> Terry just asked, what is the JWN Award? So the JWN Award is something that we started giving out in 1961, and it goes to a manager, not an officer, it has to be a manager, who we believe uh, exemplifies uh, the traits and characteristics and values of our founder, John W. Nordstrom. And it's not somebody who just had a great quarter. It's somebody who a generation or more of Nordstrom leaders 
think about that person as, as somebody who's really had a big impact on their career and their life. And so they are, as we've talked about over the years, they're more Nordstrom than we are. Uh, and they've helped build this company. And it's probably the neatest thing we get to do is to uh, recognize somebody. And so without further ado, it's my uh, honor to announce that this year's JWN winner is going to be announced by Pete. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to hand that over to you. Good setup, Jamie. That was excellent. You know, as I think about the last couple of years, most of what I think about has not been very fun. This is fun. And I'm glad I'm able to do this, and I'm privileged to be able to tell you who our winner is today. Should we do that now? Pretty sure the person's here. We do have time. You know, Fran Buchanan in 1961 did a really... <laughs> great job. Anyway, it's a storied group of people. It's... Hopefully we've gotten across, it's a big deal. And it just came through so loud and clear about this particular person that you might imagine it's a really difficult task to choose from among, what, 15,000 people? I don't know, it's a lot. But it turns out it's not as difficult as you might think because the cream rises to the top. So without further ado, what I would like to do is introduce the John W. Nordstrom Award winner for, are we saying it's for 22 or 21? Is it for like, the, it's, for, it's for this year, not recognizing from last year, for given this year. You would think we would know this stuff by now. <laughs> so um, without further ado, I would like you all to recognize and appreciate the amazing work of Lisa Warford. I think she's surprised. Lisa's family is here. All right, who's got the Kleenex? I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lisa. So this is kind of the, this is your life moment. So Lisa, you're going to have to bear with us as we talk about you. She started with us in 1989 as a stock person in children's shoes at South Center. Now, I don't know what that says about our selling costs at that time, but hard for me to imagine we needed stock people in children's shoes, but I'm glad you got that job. <laughs> So her experiences range from being a corporate merchandise manager for the Rack in the Northwest to Rack Women's Shoe Buyer, Women's Salon, Modern Shoes. We have all these terms for different types of shoe buyers. And she currently serves as the end-to-end -end buyer for Women's Best or Salon Shoes. Okay, there you have it. Her accomplishments are including a seven-year pace setter buyer manager, which is not easy to do. Was that all at South Center? All store five? All right, excellent. Um, earning multiple Buyer of the Quarter awards, being recognized for the Team of the Year in 2011, receiving the Inverted Pyramid Award in 2011, the Defying Gravity Award in 2014, and many, many more. I don't know why it took us so long to recognize you. You feel like you've, you've earned this. So thanks for hanging in there. Um, I've got this quote from Tim Bean, which I think is great. It says, if you were lucky enough to have work with Lisa, you were ready for that next assignment when it became available. That's one of the themes that runs through this like crazy is that you were such a great developer of people and invested so much time and energy in that. And I'm sure we could get all kinds of people to come up and tell that story. Um, one of the things I was looking at was your quarterly connects. It's just a bunch of stuff about another amazing year. Incredible. Expert negotiation skills. Lisa's best in class at this. Her years of experience and trust her suppliers have in her has been key to her success. 
and it keeps going. Lisa's results for the quarter. I mean, Anna Kaplan, over and over again, you just had to keep kind of reprinting this. <laughs> results for the quarter and for the year are phenomenal. Lisa's approach to end-to-end -end is company leading. Lisa's supporting a best-in-class team. She's always available to teach and mentor, but what I respect about Lisa is how Lisa leads is she teaches her team to solve the problems on their own. That is maybe the best sign of great management right there. She's an incredible human being with great compassion for others and a willingness to extend herself or go the extra mile with all she encounters. She is the best of us. I, I kind of feel like I could go on and on, but when you think about the themes of consistency and humility and servant leadership and all these attributes that are tied up in our values, and even if they weren't written down, there's things that you guys intuitively know because you know what good looks like if you've worked here for a while, and it looks like that. And it's completely reflective of the spirit of intent of what we try to accomplish here and what John W. Nordstrom set out to achieve all these years ago, and it's I mean, I can't tell you how much we appreciate that. It's a big deal to us, and, and we appreciate you. The last thing I'll do is nobody has a career that doesn't have some funny things that didn't happen. And this is something I did not know, but I believe it happened. So um, when she was a department manager at South Center, the layout of the store was such that the LP, the loss prevention place, was right behind your department, right? And anyone that's worked at South Center might recognize that occasionally there's some bad things happen there and occasionally we have to apprehend some people. <laughs> and so Lisa was often called upon to be a witness when someone was being detained and waiting for the police department by LP. Now that's not part of the job description, pretty sure. The LP agent, in this one case, the LP agent had to leave the room and ask Lisa if she could stay with the person who was supposedly handcuffed to the bench. Could you stay with him for a couple minutes because I gotta leave the room? And of course Lisa said, yes, I will do this. Well, apparently, uh, faulty handcuffs or something, the person breaks free and somehow the criminal got free and found mace in the top drawer of the office and started spraying at Lisa, right? <laughs> As we understand it, the situation required some pretty sophisticated moves. So I, I've had it demonstrated to me, and I'm not gonna play that up. There was something about you in your diminutive stature somehow preventing this guy from exiting the door because you were... <laughs> You were playing some defense. You stopped the person. You had a job to do, you had a job to do. clearly. <laughs> Needless to say, it was a memorable experience for Lisa early in her career. So that's what we're talking about here, folks. <laughs> Above and beyond, extend yourself. Do more than the job ass. Always think about the company. Think about your team. And by the way, try to avoid the mace whenever it comes your way. So again, you're the best of us. We really appreciate it. You join a very esteemed group, and uh, we're proud of you, and thank you. Thank you. All right. So, Lisa, you kind of have to say something. You don't have to say much, but you have to say something. Here, I'm going to give you the mic. Mm, All right. I just want to say I'm ex I'm going to start crying. <laughs> I'm extremely honored. I adore this company. I've worked for this company since I was 18, started as a stock person, and have had the most incredible mentors along the way. Tim Bean in the back room, I can't say enough about you. Um, you have shown me the way. Um, appreciate everything that you've done. Givi, you're another one. Just appreciate all that you've done for me. So thank you. This is an incredible honor. Fantastic.
Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this podcast journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing as well. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you received great service, or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with both the founder and the chairwoman of the 15% Pledge, Aurora James and Emma Green. Representation, you know, it truly, truly matters. And I think especially for young people, if you are not seeing people that look like you doing certain things, it becomes incredibly hard to envision that possibility for yourself. Aurora's right. And I think this conversation around racial equality, we are going to look back and the businesses who decided not to move forward and not to progress are just gonna seem like really out of step and really out of touch and will wonder what they were ever thinking. Together, Aurora and Emma have created real tangible and sustainable change for black owned businesses with the goal of building long lasting generational wealth in black communities. And I'm super excited for the opportunity to help highlight this really important initiative that has made a big impact on our industry already. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod.